She lived in what is called the evangelical South. And she was a staunch opponent of a particular brand of Christianity that's present there and, and here too, that sought to exclude people from church communities based on race or gender or sexual orientation. And according to Rachel, she writes this. She says, what makes the gospel offensive isn't who it keeps out, but who it lets in. She was concerned that if the gospel wasn't good news to those that we call the outliers, then maybe it isn't good news at all. And if Jesus started with those people who were outliers, then why shouldn't we? So I've been thinking a lot about the extent of God's love recently and our obligation as his followers to extend that same love to people around us. So for Rachel, an overwhelming tragedy of the evangelical movement in America was its failure to widen that love enough to embrace or to include people in it um, rather than excluding them from the good news which naturally got me thinking, and maybe this, these are good questions for you as well. How, how wide do I actually think God's loving embrace is? Have my views changed on this as I've aged? Um, and are there people in this world that I believe are unable to know and love God in the way that I do? Rachel Held Evans was careful always to make clear that she still believed that discipleship had a cost, which is the Bonhoeffer line. And she writes this, so this is a quote. She says, Jesus lived, taught, died, and rose again to start a new family in which Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female, are all part of one holy body. Certainly there will always be those who reject the gospel because of the cost of discipleship, but let it be because of the cost of discipleship not the cost, the cost of false fundamentals, not because they've been required to change something they cannot change. That, that's a big line, and I wonder sometimes if we bristle at some of those ideas. You know, what cannot be changed about us? What must be changed in order to become disciples of Jesus? And these are not just questions that face us today, right? These are fundamental questions at the very center of Acts. Who belongs in the community of faith? Who is my neighbor? Not just a neighbor like the person, I think Jamie was talking about this really beautifully last week, not just the outsider that I help, but the outsider that I bring inside to the community. Now, the first part of Acts begins in Jerusalem, and in it, Luke describes a really decisive step that the church made. It was where their faith, the faith of a group of Jews and the gospel that had been committed to them, was communicated to people who were not Jews, people who were of a different religious and racial background. We see this, of course, right at the beginning, right? Acts 1 verse 8, where Jesus sends out his disciples to the ends of the earth, from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the end of the earth, right? By Acts 5, it's become the surrounding cities. In Acts 8, it's reached Samaria in the passage that we're looking at today, it reaches an Ethiopian. In chapter 10, it's a devout Roman. By Acts 14, we hit a second half of the book of Acts. Um, and it's shifted from Jerusalem to Antioch. And Paul and Barnabas are telling stories to the local Christians who are themselves Jews and Gentiles all meeting together. And they're speaking about the success that they're having 
in their missionary tour in Asia Minor among the Gentiles. So in Acts, Luke, or who we call Luke, um, is reporting the truth that God had opened a door of faith to people who were previously outsiders, excluded, the Gentiles. So I want to take some time today just to focus on one outsider. Peter meets on the road between Jerusalem and Gaza. I think this story is radical and strange. It's really strange the way that it ends, but I'm not going to really cover that, sadly. Um, but it's a, it's a record of how the church understood God's love. And Luke, who was recording the Acts of the Apostles for the community of God, believed it needed to be in this record. And my prayer is that as we think through this story together, and what I am going to do and what I would normally do is kind of go line by line as I sometimes do. So if you want to pull open the story to get ready, my prayer is that we might be challenged in our own thoughts about who our family should include and how we might be called to reconsider the ways that we think about the gospel. Um, So I'm going to read this story bit by bit. And I want to listen out for moments to pause and consider what is being said. So if you have it in front of you, uh, this is from Acts 8. And I'm thinking, I don't have the verse numbers, but I think it's 26-ish. Am I right? Yeah. So it begins this way. Philip and the Ethiopian. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. I'm going to stop immediately. I'm sorry. Before I think about this line specifically, I need to remind you of what's just happened. So you can cheat and skip backwards. But the church has had something drastic and radical happen to it. Philip was one of these seven people who were selected by the apostles to look after the daily distribution of food within the community. If you remember, there was anxiety between the, um, the Hebrew Jews and what were called the Hellenistic Jews, people who had adopted a Greek way of living that certain widows were not being looked after properly. So the church picks seven. Um, One of them was Philip. Another was Stephen. And just before the story, Stephen has been stoned to death. He was in Jerusalem. And one of the the main character of our story oversaw it um, just before. Luke reports that a growing persecution immediately after the stoning of Stephen forced many disciples to flee. So Philip ends up in Samaria. And in a strange way, this satisfies that call of Christ right at the beginning of Acts, right? You should go out into Samaria. But what is notable is here is that this isn't a strategy, right? This isn't church planning or planting. This is Philip in Samaria because of persecution, because he had to flee and he ended up somewhere. And so we see in this opening verse that he isn't on a road that is well-trafficked, right? He's not standing on the corner of, um, you know, that esplanade that runs along D.Y. Beach waiting to meet people. Um, He's there because an angel tells him to go. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road. Many theologians that I was reading have suggested that the Acts um, of the Apostle should be called the Acts of God or the Acts of the Spirit, rather than the Acts of the Apostles. And this story is going to be a really good case study in that. Philip is where he is, and he goes where he goes, because God wants him there. The spread of the gospel in Acts is God's plan for the world. Okay, next line. 
So he started out, and on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all of the treasury of the Kandake, which means queen of the Ethiopians. So I, I was tempted to end the sermon at this, at this verse, um, which might satisfy some people who are yawning. Um, so much about this chance encounter is really astonishing. So who does Philip meet? An Ethiopian. So just to clarify, has anyone here been to Ethiopia out of curiosity? Well, you haven't been to this Ethiopia unless you've also been to Sudan. Um, there you go. <laughs> um, yeah, that's right. So what we now consider modern-day Sudan, um, or the northern part of Sudan as well, this is before, um, is what Ethiopia was. So one thing that we can be almost certain of was that this man was black, and this is the first time in the gospel that the good news is extending to a new ethnic group. And that fact alone is worth thinking about. The very first non-Jewish convert to Christianity that is recorded in the book of Acts is a foreigner and a person of color. It is the story of a black African from a distant nation encountering the gospel. And as such, it is consistent with what Luke does again and again and again in the gospel of Luke and in Acts, where he keeps saying that the good news is for all people. More significant, though, for a Jewish reader particularly, is the fact that he is a eunuch. So apologies for talking about some unpleasant aspects of the ancient Near East, but here we go. Um, while Luke initially calls him an Ethiopian, the rest of the passage he's just talked about as a eunuch. It was a common practice in the ancient Near East to um, castrate those who were in charge of either a harem of a king or who had to spend a lot of time with a queen. Um, and our, our man in this story is of the latter type. During this period, eunuchs in the courts in this part of Africa were not just castrated as we typically think of it, but they were dismembered, partially dismembered as well. So all of this makes our eunuch well and truly on the fringes of Judaism. In Deuteronomy 23, uh, we read that, quote, no one who has been emasculated by crushing or cutting may enter the assembly of the Lord. And because of the dismemberment, the eunuch could not have converted to Judaism, even if he had tried. Uh, the reason is obvious, because he couldn't have been properly circumcised. Driving his chariot to Jerusalem as a seeker after the Jewish God, the eunuch would have found himself unable to participate in temple worship. This is a man who is unable to change something about himself. He is a foreigner, he is an outsider, he is an outlier, and he has been excluded from the loving embrace of community. Okay, the next line. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The reason for the eunuch's journey to Jerusalem isn't explicitly stated, but it's likely that he was an adherent of Judaism. Uh, that is to say he was a non-Jew who had um, worshipped the Jewish God, or at least he was a spiritual seeker. And he was here reading a scroll of the Old Testament. Now, this is a strange moment, right? It, how often would people ex en encounter somebody reading out loud? Uh, but you would all the time. In, this is, in antiquity, reading out loud is commonplace. It's encouraged, in fact. 
So this detail is not so strange. And, he, and the chariot is not a... Uh, it's not in a, an elaborate chariot. It's just a, a flat board, probably being pulled by a mule, which is why he can be chased as opposed to fleeing. Um, but the reading out loud of the scroll, can I, can I get you to tuck that piece of information away in your brain, if that's okay? Because it's kind of essential for the rest of the story. All right, so let's read a bit more because I've been going through slowly. The Spirit told Philip, Go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. Uh, And so, you know, this is from Isaiah 53. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants, for his life was taken from the earth? The eunuch asked Philip, tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news of Jesus. I I, I love this passage. This passage offers further evidence that it's God who is directing the ministry of the early church. You notice that it's not an angel now who is telling Philip what to do. It's the spirit. Um, And Luke uses the spirit and angels interchangeably at this point of Acts. Rather than an angel, the spirit says, go to that chariot, stay near it. Um, and that's a weird turn of phrase, right? Because in your mind, you're kind of imagining someone jogging alongside a slow-moving chariot. But the word in Greek for um, what we have as stay near is actually in Acts, closer to draw near, which Luke uses earlier in Acts chapter 5 to refer explicitly to people joining into Christian community. I, f- I think this is so lovely. Philip is called to be physically near, right? It's essential. If you want to speak to him, you have to be close. But he's also asked to draw near in a posture of community, of generous community. Such a good lesson. Approach others as though they are a person to whom you owe an obligation of love. And then Philip asks this question, do you understand what you are reading? I thought immediately of Dave, actually, when I read this passage, because we spoke just recently of Luke 24 and the road to Emmaus, if you know that passage of Scripture. I couldn't help but think of this passage in Luke, um, where Jesus, who is disguised from two travelers, leaving Jerusalem, joins them on the road to Emmaus. Do you guys know what I'm talking about, this story? It's in Luke 24. Jesus joins two travelers. Um, And the similarities of these two stories are not just coincidental. They are intentional and they are echoing that story. So here, Jesus joins two travelers leaving Jerusalem, probably going home, and they don't know him. Philip, in our story, joins a traveler on his way home from Jerusalem who doesn't know him. Both Jesus and Philip engage their fellow travelers with a pointed question. In Luke 24, Jesus asks, what are you discussing as you walk along? And Philip asks, do you understand what you're reading? For both sets of travelers, Jesus's death and resurrection is the subject of their conversation. 
For each of these travelers, it's because somebody interprets the Old Testament and explains what is going on in light of Jesus' sacrifice. At each of these, at the end of each of these scenes, they, they have an act of sacred observance. Jesus breaks bread with the travelers and Philip baptizes the eunuch. And just in case you're not convinced of the similarities, both of them disappear at the end, randomly, literally, physically disappear and reappear somewhere else. So just so you know. Uh, I wish I could talk about all the thoughts that I have about these doubling of stories, but the main sense is perhaps the most obvious. Luke wants to reinforce to the church that Jesus of Nazareth gives shape and meaning and color and explanation to the prophecies of the Old Testament. The church that is growing now in Jerusalem and soon will grow to the ends of the earth is founded on an explanation of the Old Testament that is expressed and understood in the resurrection of Jesus. And I think this is lovely because it's nice to know that sometimes things are not self-explanatory, right? For the eunuch who is just reading the Old Testament, he doesn't understand it. He doesn't know who the suffering servant of Isaiah is, and he needs someone else, right? He needs somebody else, a generous, um, in this case, evangelist, to interpret those words for him and to interpret them through the life of Jesus. I would say that this is good evangelism. I think evangelism is one of those words that, because I grew up in a Christian family, I imagine in very specific ways, right? randomly encountering people and reading a particular set of rules about life to them, five ways of, I can't remember what that was called. This, to my mind, is a picture of evangelism. It's a generous question that's open, right? And it's met by an equally humble and generous response. Philip says, do you understand? And the eunuch says, can you help me understand? This conversation is preceded by God's work. It is directed by the Spirit. The eunuch has already shown himself to be seeking God. He's reading the scrolls. Philip just listens and he is obedient and he is a willing participant in the work that God has already been doing. There is so much here um, and more than I can cover. The passage that the eunuch is reading is focused on, if you've noticed, humiliation, injustice, It fits with Luke's intention to show how Christ's life and death explained Isaiah's prophecy, because Jesus died unjustly, because he was who he claimed to be, right? The promised one of Israel. But like Philip, we know how the story unfolds. I want to know what Philip told the eunuch. This annoys me. It's the same thing that annoys me about what happens on the road to Emmaus. You don't hear what makes the hearts of people burn when they're explaining the scripture. But I I, I assume that it was something about the vindication of the humiliation. The tragic, unjust death, like in that passage in Isaiah, appears to end in everything being lost, but in fact it results in everything being gained. One critic that I was reading pointed out that the eunuch probably read more than six verses. Um, He's on a long trip. uh, And he says that he probably read forward a few chapters in the scrolls of Isaiah. And it's a really beautiful thought because if our eunuch had read a little further into Isaiah 56, and this is worth having a look at, Isaiah 56, 3 to 5, the eunuch might have had a little bit of hope stirring in his heart when he read these words. 
Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. Let no eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says. To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. You know, if the eunuch had read these words, we can imagine that he would have had a particularly special interest in that suffering servant in Isaiah 53. He might have wondered how the humiliation and misery of this despised and rejected servant, how might it relate to him who is a despised and rejected eunuch? His questions make much more sense, I think, in light of this passage. Is the prophet talking about himself or is there someone else who is going to come along and bring restoration? Luke is obsessed with tying Old Testament promises to Christ. It's what we call Christological. Um, The Old Testament to the, the good news of Jesus. And here Philip does it. He can tell a dejected and reviled eunuch that those promises of Israel for the eunuchs have been fulfilled in the person of Jesus. You who are outside of the saving law of Israel are no longer excluded. You belong. It's a radical message of hope for this eunuch. I wonder if anyone can remember. I would do this to my students. Does anyone remember the thing I said, keep in your mind, right? Um, Which is that question, do you understand what you're reading? And the fact that he said that out loud. There is a word for this. It's called um, paranomasia. Don't remember that. It's just wordplay. Do you understand what you're reading also means do you understand what you hear? And it's a constant theme of the New Testament, right? People who saw, people who heard but did not understand, right? But the play on words is the fact that Luke knew that Acts would be read out loud as well to the believers in the church. So Philip's question is not just a question to the eunuch, it is a question to us. We, too, are the listening community. The book of Acts would have been read to the early church, and so we are asked as they were, do you understand what you're hearing in this story? Do you understand what you're reading? Do you get who gets included? This guy? Do you see how the gospel works? Do you see what Christ has done for those who were outsiders? Can you understand yet just how radical this love is, how far it extends, and who it includes? So the end of our story. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, look, here is water. What can stand in my way of being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. And this is where it gets weird. When they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on on his way rejoicing. And Philip, however, appeared at um, Azotus and traveled about preaching the gospel in all of the towns until he reached Caesarea. This is a very sudden and brief end to a story. Uh, And it includes a supernatural disappearance that Luke doesn't bother to explain, so I'm not going to either. Um... Suffice to say that it happens often, and a lot of people have related this to the stories of Elijah and Elisha to Christ himself. The key point is that the eunuch who has been ministered to by the Spirit, who has been convinced of Christ's salvation, 
sees some water and says, what's going to stop me now from being baptized? Apparently, the modern equivalent of this Greek is, why not? Um, You know, that's sort of, "Ah, why not? Let's do it. Why not? But I think the sad reality is that there are endless reasons for why not. I imagine this question for the eunuch is actually one of an uncertain mood. Everything has stood in the way of him being baptized. He is a foreigner. He is an outsider. He's a black African from a distant land. He is a non-Jew. He is a mutilated man who is held in disgust by Old Testament law. And Philip, who has been pretty good so far in listening to the promptings of God, would know these passages, right? He would know the Old Testament law. He might have made the same mistake that other Christians in the book of Acts make, particularly around the issue of circumcision, right? He might have been held short. I can talk to you, but I don't know about baptizing you. Because baptizing is different from evangelism. It means proximity and touch. It's an intimate acknowledgement that the eunuch now belongs, that he's part of a new community that we call the Christian faith. But in the end, the question is as radically simple as it sounds. Why not? Yeah. Why not? So Philip baptizes the eunuch. The gospel spreads to the ends of the earth, just as Christ had said. And the eunuch goes home, rejoicing in his newfound hope. So I'm at the end here. Because the eunuch is included in Luke's long list of misfits, right? The poor, the lame, the blind, the prostitutes, the tax collectors, the sinners, and us as well. And so the questions remain. Who is the gospel for? What does the Christian community include? And what is stopping us from loving them into our community? Amen? Let's pray.